now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? I did just get vaccinated uh, at a suspiciously empty vaccination clinic in the city. It's the first time I've been to the city in months first dose in and it's not because of personal choice that I've waited this long to get vaccinated. It's just incompetence on a national level. Well, I've been eating the horse paste and it's been doing a really good job of making me shit myself in grocery stores. I like how Amelia says she hasn't been to the city in months. Like she's Pa Ingalls <laughs> going on a supply <laughs> run. I might be imagining this, but I feel like in one of the books, not sure which one it is, but it's something like Pa goes to the city and he's gone for months and he comes back and he brings back glass window panes for Ma and some like cinnamon sticks. And like, that's it. Uh, it was peppermint sticks. Peppermint sticks. You're right. Yes, for Christmas. I, 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 yes. And I'm like, really? It took you that long to get a couple, you know, four by four glass squares and some penny candy, Pa? But I remember being very unimpressed with Pa and also wondering what he was spending his time doing in the city. You know, I don't trust him. Honestly, quarantine has really sped up the complete and final (laughs) and utter disintegration of my brain. Because I'm someone who I need a lot of stimulation. You know, I need to see things. I need to I need to smell stuff. I'm just one of those people. And so being <laughs> at home, <laughs> I, I have a very good sense of smell. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I love going to the mall and sniffing perfumes. I'm just, you know, I, I got, I need, I need, I'm like a, a toddler, you know, I need, I need visual, I need stimuli. And so being stuck at home has been absolutely miserable. And now I've been fully vaccinated for like, probably, oh God, but four months now. And it still hasn't changed anything because no one else is getting vaccinated. So, you know, fuck my drag, I guess. Oh, they just don't want you to be able to sniff things anymore. It's your right to sniff whatever you want to sniff. Like I was sniffing the man on the train home who smelled so strongly of fish. (laughs) I may as well have been at the market. He, I don't know what was going on. And then he proceeded to start making a sub sandwich. Oh, wait, that was the same guy? It was the same guy. I it was with, two um, guys. No, with not with fish, with cold cuts. So he had like a salami, like mm. and cheese. And I, I was, I mean, one. Even though they're deep, they say they're deep cleaning the trains. How can you be sure? But I mean, the man smelled of fish. I don't think he was very discerning. So. The Venn diagram of people who would make a sandwich on public transportation and people who smell like fish is a circle. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right it's just what it says on the tin with him you, you know what you're getting i guess i get i mean it, it is it is a very cursed train line i don't think i've ever had like a normal day on my train line there's always been like 
some kind of police incident or a fire or the trains just aren't running. I've had someone polishing their shoes on the train once. Um, a guy whose shorts fell off, like disintegrated <laughs> off from his body. Weren't there? Was there someone wearing assless chaps once? Did I imagine that? Didn't you have? No, that, that was the guy with the him? shorts. He, oh, like, okay. They were just like he was all out there. In my mind, it was a little more village people than it was in reality. But it's it's a trip, and it's good to see that not even the pandemic can and crush its freaky spirit. So you know, life goes on. Well, I guess we should start talking about the movies then, because they also try as they might want to go on. One thing about the movies, I resent filmmakers making me take my life into my own hands, like forcing me to go see their shitty movie at the cinema. Absolutely. Like, the times they have changed. I feel like simultaneous releases are the way of the future, and all of the studios and directors fighting against it now is kind of like the music industry fighting against digital singles yeah in like you know the turn of the century so well no they want to extend their this is their 1699 cd moment you know and they want to keep it alive i love going to the movies and uh, i don't know i'm i'm a lot more tolerant of the things that irritate other people about movie going whether it's people talking or the floor being some sort of like gelatinous mass you know of of coke icy that's melted. All that kind of stuff doesn't doesn't really bother me because I love the communal experience of movie going. But the problem with that is you can't like cajole people into doing it. You know what I mean? It can't be a forced camaraderie kind of situation. I, I'm not a big movie theater person. If I'm going to the movies, it's because I'm going to see something I really want to see or I'm seeing a film I want to see on the big screen. So more than likely, like if they're playing a silent film that I've never seen on the big screen. I want to go see that at the uh, single screen theater. But I'm just not paying fucking $30 to see M. Night Shyamalan's old. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was worth the $0 that we paid to see it. And, I mean, we have watched it. I mean, <laughs> that movie felt like a fever dream. There's a character named Midsize Sedan. <laughs> to anyone who hasn't seen the movie, there's a character who's, a, I think he's a rapper, right? And he, that's his stage yeah. name is Midsize Sedan. You know, like all the cool rappers would, would do. And <laughs> I'm like, has M. Night ever listened to the Top 40 radio before? And um, also one of the characters is a nurse. And so he keeps reminding everyone that he's a nurse. He's like, hello, I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse. My name is Jaren. I'm Jaren. I'm a nurse. I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to get sued for slander because everyone listens to this podcast. All the Hollywood insiders listen, listen to this podcast. <laughs> but um, I'm convinced that M. Night had a script doctor for The Sixth Sense because that's the only one where the dialogue isn't completely abysmal. And there were a lot of really great writers um, working as script doctors at that particular moment in the industry. That was a, a high point for script doctoring as like a sideline for playwrights. You know, like I, Tom Stoppard was a script doctor. I think Carrie Fisher was a, stop, a, a, a script doctor at one point in the 90s. And so everyone had a script doctor. And so it makes more sense logically that he would have one really good movie because of collaboration with other people. And then everything else is him falling flat on his face. Versus the idea that just one day he forgot how to make movies, which just happens sometimes. But I don't think M. Night ever really, I don't know. I, I like signs. I, I'm a big M. Night fan because I like dumb movies. But this one was just so... I mean, there's abysmal. a limit. Because, like, all of us love dumb movies. I think with, with old, it just, like, it was beyond the pale. Like, it wasn't even enjoyable in the way that, you know, some bad movies are. I, I don't know. I really love the scene where the woman, I can't remember the actress's name, the woman who's playing Garcia Bernal's wife, runs up to the doctor guy and is like, 
I need your help. I want you to know that I'm a museum curator, so I'm not easily alarmed. <laughs> and then later on, she needs to like date some bones, and that's how they, you know, that's M yeah. Night. That's M Night being subtle and establishing her professional acumen before it's needed narratively, and that's called craft. He's good at it. <laughs> I mean, I think we should put the, you know, Mac voice exposition. That's not cool, We can make it work. We'll just have to add some exposition, a whole scene of it. (laughs) Yes. That that was the whole movie. It was just exposition. I don't think there's ever been something funnier than at the end of Split or whatever, when Tiff and I didn't know what Bruce Willis was doing there. I had never heard of that movie before in my life. And Christopher was like, oh, yeah, no, it was a big hit. I'm like, when? Where? Who? What are you talking about? M. Night being so confident in his self-referential, like, Marvel universe. Ugh, king. In fairness, Tiff, Tiff and I, we have coined a phrase, like, from The Happening, when you see an actor for, like, like quite a big-name actor. Oh, hell yeah. For, you know, like, ten minutes or so in a movie, they rucked it. Is the is the saying because Alan Ruck appears in that movie for like fucking three minutes. He got paid, and then, and then he left, and he's <laughs> never seen again. Um, so whenever you see yeah, a big name star in a movie, then that they're rucking it, and fair power to him. Anyway, that's enough about and not Shyamalan. <laughs> that's enough about Alan Ruck. What's that? It's the lions in the zoo. One can hear them here often. Many people in this building complained. The roaring keeps them awake. And you don't mind it? No. To me, it's the way the sound of the sea is to others. Natural and soothing. I like it. Some nights there is another sound. The panther. It screams like a woman. I don't like that. Oh, I hadn't realized how dark it was getting. I like the dog. It's friendly. Hello, and welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Tiff, and I'm joined, as always, by Amelia. Hello. And Candace. Hello. So today we're talking about Arkeo's 1942 horror classic Cat People, directed by Jacques Tourneur and produced by Val Luton. Cat People is an extremely short movie with an equally uncomplicated plot, but I'll run through it very quickly. Uh, the film begins with a meet-cute at the Central Park Zoo between Serbian dress designer Irina Dubrovna and happy-go-lucky marine draftsman Oliver Reed, who, as he says at one point, has never been sad in his life. Uh, they quickly fall in love and marry. However, Irina is convinced that she carries a centuries-old curse from the old country and will transform into a killer panther if she becomes too emotional. As a result, she refuses to consummate her marriage to Oliver. Convinced that her belief in the curse is a symptom of mental illness, he convinces her to consult a psychiatrist. When this doesn't help, Oliver begins to drift away from Arena and into the arms of his co-worker, Alice. This arouses Arena's jealousy, and suddenly our trio begins to experience a number of strange, potentially panther-related incidents. Potentially. <laughs> Things reach a boiling point when Arena's creepy psychiatrist, Dr. Judd, makes a move on her and is subsequently mauled to death. Arena then returns to the Central Park Zoo and ends her life, leaving not a human corpse, but that of a panther. It's a fucking sick movie. I'll just say that. Also... Arena does nothing wrong the whole time, but we'll get into that later. Also, Oliver Reed is Kent Smith, not Oliver Reed. Just in case you're wondering, this is not like an eight-year-old Oliver Reed. Oh, right. There is. I forgot there was an actual real-life Oliver Reed. I always think that's funny when that happens. Okay, so as has become my custom, we're going to begin with a baby here. (laughs) 
I just love it when you start with, I just love it when, when you start off with babies and then you race through the first like 55 years of someone's life and then it's the kids. I just find it's funny. I love babies. Curtis loves babies uh, so much that it makes her make like turkey noises. <laughs> So Val Luton was born Vladimir Ivanovich Hofschneider in Yalta in 1904. His mother, Nina Leventon, came from a prominent local family, but his father was a shady army officer with a gambling habit, so unsurprisingly, that union was not to last. And by 1909, Nina was raising her children alone, first in Berlin, then in New York. Uh, conveniently, Nina's sister was the famous Broadway star Ala Nizimova, which is a very helpful connection to have when you're immigrating to a new continent. Uh, Nina Vladimir and his sister Lucy Olga moved in with her, and Nina encouraged her children to assimilate, speaking only English and Americanizing Leventon to Luton and Vladimir to Val. Man, he should have kept the Vlad. That would have been cool. It would have suited the horror movies a lot more, wouldn't it? Yeah, but what's she gonna do? Uh, in his childhood and teen years, Luton attended military school and pursued journalism. At one point in his teens, he was fired from a Connecticut newspaper for making up a story about a truckload of kosher chickens dying in a heat wave. <laughs> I could not find what? I could not find any elaboration beyond that. What a story to make up. Now people just make up stories about horse paste curing <laughs> coronavirus. Good old days, huh? Times more more innocent, I guess. Well, lest you assume he was like a devil may care little stinker, uh people who knew him described him as being imaginative, friendly, and funny, but also kind of morose and sensitive, which would obviously come to make itself known in his later work. Undeterred, he went on to study journalism at Columbia University and became a prolific author of articles, poetry, and pulp fiction. He wrote novels in several genres, including Rape of Glory, The Fateful Star Murder, and Where the Cobra Sings, the latter of which was published under the very convincing pseudonym Cosmo Forbes. Cosmo is a great fake name. It's not a believable one, but it's a great one. <laughs> you found out Kramer's first name? That's right. You ready? Yes, yes, I'm ready. I've been trying to get it out of him for 10 years. What is it? What? Cosmo. Cosmo? Cosmo. <laughs> so Luton's most successful novel was the 1932 bestseller No Bed of Her Own, which was very loosely adapted that same year into Paramount's No Man of Her Own, which is mainly notable for being the film where Clark Gable and Carol Lombard met. But uh, as I said, it was an extremely loose adaptation and probably shouldn't be counted as Luton's introduction to Hollywood. That came a little bit later, thanks to her old friend, Nepotism. So during the silent era, Alan Nazimova had used her Broadway stardom as a springboard into the film industry. She launched her own production company in 1917 and served as lead actress, director, producer, editor, and any number of other uh, behind-the-scenes roles on movies like 1923's Salome. So through her famous sister, Luton's mother Nina found employment at MGM and worked her way up to become head of the story department, which is actually pretty impressive on its own. Yeah, wow. Uh, she then secured a job for Val, writing publicity at MGM's New York office. From there, Luton caught the attention of MGM producer and basket cast whipping boy David Oselznik, who <laughs> hired him as a story editor in 1933. Look, he's a whipping boy for a fucking reason. <laughs> Luton moved to Hollywood for the job, becoming Selznick's boy Friday and receiving his first screen credit on A Tale of Two Cities in 1935. And actually, Luton was responsible for securing the film rights to A Tale of Two Cities, along with several other public domain works, which bolstered Selznick's output during his tenure at MGM. The Selznick unit's roster of classic properties, curated by the discerning eye of Val Luton, was described by fellow producer John Houseman as, quote, the envy of the trade. So it was on a tale of two cities that Luton met and befriended the collaborator who would become most closely associated with his 
legacy, director Jacques Tourneur. Uh, like Luton, Turner was an immigrant with family ties to the early film industry. His father was the famed silent director Maurice Turner. Born in Paris, Jacques had spent his adolescence in California while his father was directing Hollywood films, but both returned to France in the mid-1920s after Maurice had a falling out with MGM. Who among us? Yeah, I mean, can you blame him? Jacques then embarked upon a directing career in France, where he made four movies before returning to Hollywood in 1934. He couldn't land any directing assignments in America, though, and eventually took a job doing second unit work at MGM for 100 bucks a week. He was placed on the second unit of A Tale of Two Cities under producer Val Luton, and the two became fast friends while working on the Storming of the Bastille sequence. According to Turner, Val and I liked each other immediately. We were interested in the same things. We both liked boats. <laughs> Man, it was fucking way easier to make friends back then, huh? You know, when two <laughs> boat guys lock eyes across a crowded room, <laughs> what's better than okay. that? Well, what's better than this? That ex- guys being dudes. <laughs> that explains a big part of this movie that I didn't really understand. So that clarifies something. You know what? I literally didn't make that connection. Oh my God. Because the boat nerd stuff I thought was totally out of left field. But Luton's like Walt Disney putting trains and everything. That's in boats. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if either of them had just like a little boat that he toddled around in in the yard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So through the rest of the decade, Turner climbed his way up to directing MGM shorts and finally made his first American feature, the crime drama They All Come Out, in 1939. Meanwhile, Luton continued working under Selznick, even as Selznick left MGM to launch Selznick International Pictures, and notably did some uncredited writing work on Gone with the Wind. However, a key word there is probably uncredited, as after nearly a decade, Luton never really managed to climb through the ranks himself. Still, his work did capture the attention of executives over at RKO, who offered him a job there in 1942. Extremely loyal to Selznick, Luton was initially hesitant to take the job, but Selznick, who had been head of production at RKO in the early 30s, actually wound up helping to negotiate Luton's new contract. Which is, uh, for as much as we say we hate RKO, we have covered an awful lot of their movies. You know, I don't know um, if I really hate RKO. I think it's more so. Um, it's interesting. To- I, I guess it's more yeah, just like this is not how you run a studio. Yeah, and it's a studio. Why are you running a studio like <laughs> it's a studio whose whose quality and consistency of output obviously vacillates widely over um, its history and the idea that it's really for a. Honestly, the the only studio that doesn't have a dominant personality at its core during those peak years, you know, I mean, prior to the Howard Hughes era, it doesn't, it doesn't, ha- you know, it doesn't have the equivalent of like a Louis Vimeer, you know, or a Jack Warner or an Adolf Zucker. It doesn't have any of that. And so it kind of has this very strange kind of loose corporate identity. But then I think by the same token, that is what allows RKO movies to have a very strong artistic stamp and a very uh, almost like an auteur kind of thing going on you know between people like Val Luton and then even like down to you know the visual look of the movies you know with people like Van Ness Polglaze and then it's like but still that kind of almost committee like method of running the company still doesn't prevent them from shutting down Orson Welles. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely RKO movies that I enjoy and find like really interesting. I, I think it's just for me, as a studio, I mean, I don't prefer one over the other at this point anyway. Like, they're all much of a muchness. But with RKO, it's just like, they make so many decisions that are very bad. And you're like, <laughs> how are you fucking this up so hard? Like, <laughs> Maybe we just see ourselves too much in RKO. Yeah, honestly. I guess. 
Because they're like, yeah, cool, let's make the story of Vernon and Irene Castle. That's a good idea. With, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. That's a great idea. Like, come on. Make a good decision. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't end up becoming an incubator of talent. I don't think the way that some of the other, like, directionless studios were. Like, I would argue that Fox, in that pre-Zanuck era in the early 30s ends up becoming kind of an interesting place to toss around ideas, you know, that maybe don't always work out. And you don't really end up getting that with RKO, I don't necessarily think. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting studio. It's a weird studio. And it's very atypical. And the product is very atypical. And I think it also makes sense that Katherine Hepburn is their defining star, because she is also strange and atypical. (laughs) And, you know, makes sense. Well, RKO in 1942 like RKO most years, wasn't doing so hot. The studio had begun on shaky footing, was saved under Selznick's management by films like King Kong and stars like a pre-box office poison Catherine Hepburn, and was kept alive through the 30s mainly by a cycle of screwball comedies and a Sarah Rogers musicals. I was going to say, like, those terrible Anne Southern movies that we talked about oh, yeah. way back in the day. Oh, Raymond. yeah. Yeah, God, awful. When that's was standing between you and bankruptcy, you know, maybe it's better to just let the dog die at a certain point, you know? And we say this as people who love the Astaire Rogers musicals. Most, for the most part, there's some that are best left forgotten. But She's talking about Carefree, just like, okay? Everyone knows we're talking about Carefree. Whoa, okay, that's not what I was talking Carefree, (laughs) I happen to enjoy Carefree Mm. because it's just so batshit crazy. The hypnosis angle, which we, you know, discovered was written by the same guy who wrote Whirlpool. Who had a definite Um, hypnosis fetish, yeah, that was definitely... Yeah, definitely. It's so wacky. It's the craziest they've ever gone. I, I wanted him, I wanted them to lean in. I agree. To that craziness, and they just never did. My problem with Carefree is that I, I feel like it doesn't use the opportunity to have as many memorable musical numbers as it could. You know what I mean? It's like shit like The Yam. That's memorable. Oh, The Yam the right sucks, reasons. but I mean, I used to be colorblind. <laughs> it's if one of my it favorites. still existed yeah. in its yeah. Technicolor format, would be amazing to see. And I love Change Partners, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely... I, Carefree is at like the bottom of my list, but obviously it, uh, it's still Miles... Between, you know, beyond <laughs> Vernon and Irene Castle. And Southern and, and Jane Raymond at the mic. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that, that too. God, Jane Raymond literally should have been hogtied and drawn <laughs> court in a public square. I, I, I cannot, I feel, I hate him. I just hate him so much on so many levels. So in a classic case of what came first, the chicken or the egg, RKO was never as financially secure as the other major studios, and it was more willing than its competitors to take risks, which it very much did in 1940 when it allowed 25-year-old first-time feature filmmaker Orson Welles to take complete control over the production of Citizen Kane. Wells described RKO as, quote, the greatest electric train set a boy ever had, but the film incurred the wrath of William Randolph Hearst and failed to earn back its budget. Wells's follow-up, The Magnificent Ambersons, for which he was not granted final cut, was another box office flop, and studio president George Schaefer was promptly fired. Over at Paramount, one anonymous graffiti artist apparently wrote on a wall, quote, in case of an air raid, go directly to RKO. They haven't had a hit in years. <laughs> Brutal. Schaefer was replaced by Charles Kerner, who had previously managed several RKO theaters and immediately fired Orson Welles. Uh, as a theater manager, Kerner brought a unique perspective that emphasized exploitation and showmanship over more artistic aims. Kerner saw money-making potential in horror films like those made by Universal and believed that RKO could make films of a similar quality on a much smaller budget, so he assigned Val Luton to take charge of doing just that. Luton joked, quote, 
I write novels for a living, and when RKO was looking for producers, someone told them I had written horrible novels. They mistook the word horrible for horror, and I got the job. (laughs) (laughs) So he was made head of his own production unit and was promised artistic freedom as long as he stuck to a budget of $150,000, a four-week shooting schedule, kept running times under 75 minutes, and built each film around a focus-grouped title provided by Kerner's office. I feel I can do this quite easily, said Luton, as the Universal people have spent a lot of money on their horror product, but not much on brains or imagination. (laughs) Oh, shots fired! Across the bow! He set to work assembling a crack team that included screenwriter DeWitt Bodine, editor Mark Robeson, cinematographer Nicholas Musaraka, composer Roy Webb, and director Jacques Tourneur. Their goal was to make something better than RKO anticipated, something more subtle than the universal horror of the period which had fallen in quality from the highs of the early Depression years. As Luton told Bodine, quote, They may think I'm going to do the usual chiller stuff, which will make a quick profit, be laughed at, and be forgotten, but I'm going to fool them. I'm going to do the kind of suspense movie I like. However, his confidence was shaken when he found out that his first movie was to be called Cat People. <laughs> so, Professor, would you say it's time for everyone to panic? Yes, I would, Kent. I like the idea that they're kind of like, we want you to be like a James Whale kind of thing, but not any of the things that James Whale represented in terms of being transgressive or whatever. And then Val Luton's like, okay, definitely. And then he's got his little fingers crossed behind his back and then comes in and just... <laughs> Look, Cat People is not the best name to be given, but it also, what else could it have been called? Cat Lady? (laughs) Look, anything decided by a focus group is never going to be good. Well, that's the thing. Um, If nothing else, the Luton unit titles were meant to be extensively focus grouped, but legend has it that Cat People was arrived at far more arbitrarily than that. Uh, Basically, at a party in Hollywood, someone told Kerner he should make a movie called Cat People. And running through his kind of, you know, mental Rolodex of monsters, Kerner noted that there were vampire movies, uh, there were werewolf movies, and movies about all kinds of man-made monsters, but as he told Luton the next day, quote, nobody's done much with cats. And for good reason. And he's right. I mean, when we were looking for films about cats, apart from the Italians, who there is some kind of weird vendetta that the Italians have against cats, there really aren't that many cat movies, um, which is a shame because they're definitely sly. I'll say that I th- as I look at my own cat. I think a big sleeping on my bed. part of it comes down to, um, I don't think this is a word, but directability. Dog pictures are easy because dogs uh, obey people. You were never going to get a cat Rin Tin Tin. It wasn't going to happen because he was just going to take a shit on the floor and walk away. I mean, he wasn't really <laughs> I mean, and then when they do start using them, it's like Milo and Otis territory where there's like clearly throwing the cat across shots and then killing the cat. So, you know. Well, that's why it's like I was I I didn't know this, but I had seen the movie a thousand times. It's like I always marveled at how well behaved Piwak it is in Bell, Book and Candle. And then I found out that was Kim Novak's actual cat. And it's like, (sighs) oh, well, that makes sense. My cat would not be a good star. He's just obstinate. (laughs) <laughs> he wouldn't be a good star, but he'd be a great star. He'd be like, um, he'd be, uh, who am I thinking of? Um, big fat, P- like Peter Ustinov. He'd be like a Peter Ustinov is, is my guess. <laughs> it was like big fat Russian. It'd be, he'd be like Peter Ustinov. That's who Gold would be. Penny would be Alicia Cook Jr. <laughs> oh no, God, that's true. Oh no. <laughs> who would Lulu be? Uh, um, I'm trying to think of someone appropriately stupid. Joel. Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's about right. Well, dumbest dog in the world. 
for his part, Luton was absolutely devastated. Uh, he offered DeWitt Bodine a chance to jump ship, which Bodine did not take, and called Turner and said that he had no idea what to do. Turner recalled, quote, it was a stupid title, and Val, with his good taste, said that the only way to do it was not to make the blood and thunder cheap horror movie that the studio expected, but something intelligent and in good taste. Jacques and I, said Luton, are trying to perform the miracle to get out an A picture in B time. I don't sleep anymore, I just worry. Their first task was to come up with a story, the team mainly Luton, Turner, and Bodine, but it was a hyper-collaborative process that included input from just about everyone associated with the project, even secretaries. Uh, set to work constructing a premise, which Turner later described as, quote, very poor. It was made out of little details, little situations, so we had very little structure to work from. Bodine initially suggested doing it as a period picture, but Luton and Turner argued that horror stories were more effective when the audience could identify with the characters, and so the movie should be about everyday folks with regular jobs, increasing the sense of discomfort when things went lopsided. Regular jobs, like being a boat fucker. Yes. Dress designers and boat guys. They're normal jobs. What are you guys talking about? It's very <laughs> normal, everyday I really, jobs. I really like the scene where um, Ken Smith and Jane Randolph are like looking at the um, the paintings or, or photographs or whatever of the ships. And they're like, that was the last frigate uh, under the Queen's heraldry in the war whatever and then you know someone's time and just kind of just like walks out of the room because that's me that's me anyone the second anyone starts talking about boats i my eyes glaze over don't get it not interested fuck maritime law the boat nerd <laughs> stuff in this movie is appalling though he took no screenplay credit luton was very involved in the scripting process of cat people working long into the night rewriting whatever the team had come up with that day the script incorporated several elements drawn from his personal life including what his wife ruth described as his folk fear of cats which she suspected he may have learned from a russian nanny in early childhood his fear of being touched and a story about a leopard woman that he'd published in weird tales magazine a few years earlier so, really, are you telling me this movie is self-insert, he's the cat person? According to his wife, a little bit, yes. <laughs> wow, okay. This changes a lot of things. <laughs> Uh, through this collaborative writing process, DeWitt Bodine finally produced a script that set off instant alarm bells at the Production Code Administration. Censor Joseph Breen took issue with, quote, "...the overemphasis on the fact that Oliver and Arena are not consummating their marriage, the unacceptable suggestion on page 57 that Arena is illegitimate, and the gruesomeness and horror angles which should be minimized if the finished picture is to be approved by us." He also opposed a scene in which Arena blesses herself with the sign of the cross, which he warned wouldn't fly in England, so they filmed an alternate version of that for the UK print. What now? What What would she have done then? Why she didn't cross herself? What did they think was going to fucking happen? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> okay, I didn't realize that cat people was the iconoclast come to again. <laughs> I also like the, the idea that Duet Bodine has to put his name on Val Luton's self-insert furry fanfiction. <laughs> and he does, and that's called friendship. In casting the lead role of Arena, Luton explained that he wanted, quote, a little kitten face like Simone Simon, cute and soft and cuddly and seemingly not at all dangerous. Simone Simon was a French actress who'd been brought to Hollywood by Daryl F. Zanuck in 1935. She was one of several European ingenues taken on as pet projects by studio executives around that time. Uh, she signed with 20th Century Fox and was heralded with a major publicity campaign, but her career was plagued by illness and disputes over her onset temperament. She had supporting and co-lead roles in films like Ladies in Love and the Jimmy Stewart remake of Seventh Heaven, which I've never seen, actually. Oh my god. 
I knew Charles Farrell and you, sir, are no Charlie Farrell. That is Jimmy should, again, talk about someone who should have been strung up by his thumbs and left to be eaten by crows. Terrible. Terrible. That <laughs> killed Jimmy's career before it even really ever started because it's like way beyond his. He doesn't have any. I love Jimmy. I love Jimmy Stewart. Love Jimmy Stewart. I am. Isolate the audio. Isolate the audio. I love Jimmy Stewart. I am a noted Jimmy Stewart super fan. Um, and which is weird because we, I don't think we've, how often have we talked about Jimmy on this podcast yet? But it's that kind of, um, charm that, that, that Charlie and Janet had in the original, Char- Charles Farrell and, and Janet Gaynor had in the original Seventh Heaven, that kind of, that, um, beautiful, that fantasy, the silent, the, the fantasy, that total suspension of disbelief is so totally crashed down to earth by like 1937 or whatever that movie came out. And Jimmy just, it's like the world's worst, like summer stock production ever. And anyway, Jimmy should have been shot between the eyes. <laughs> On the lot. No mercy. Well, after those minor roles, she received some bad publicity in 1938 when a disgruntled secretary accused her of hosting orgies in her Hollywood home. Well, okay, that's not like a usual rumor. (laughs) It's a little bit Hollywood Babylon for me, but a less scandalous and maybe more believable accusation held that she presented a golden key to her bedroom to any man she was interested in. Hey, that's classy. That's something a classy dame does. Um, (laughs) Go off, bitch. Isn't this, which director had his like orgy mansion? Lionel Atwill. Lionel Atwill? Yeah, there was a whole orgy thing with him. And I think that was Lionel actually Lionel Atwill? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the man? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I assume no, he was just like, a voyeur. Have you seen the kind orgies? of people that are into orgies, Candace? That, no, that is an excellent point. That is an excellent point. Very good point. What is the password? Orgy. You may enter. Yeah, I was just <laughs> so taken aback by that visual that I had threw up my mouth a little bit, but that's fine. Gross. Takes all kinds. Well, in any case, though the secretary was eventually convicted of extortion, the experience and her struggling career convinced Simon to head back to France. However, this was the late 1930s, so not the ideal time to head back to France. And she was back in Hollywood on contract with RKO by 1941. Arena's husband Oliver was played by Kent Smith, a stage actor who'd been involved in founding the University Players back in the 20s, which, again, speaking of Jimmy Stewart and Summerstock, was where uh, people like Jimmy and Henry Fonda and Margaret Sullivan got their start. Uh, For Alice, the other woman of the piece, Luton wanted Jennifer Jones. But Jones was in the early stages of her extremely normal working relationship slash extramarital affair with future husband David O. Selznick, who refused to loan her out despite his fondness for Luton. So that role went to RKO stock player Jane Randolph. That's one of my favorite Hollywood marriages. I'm obsessed. I mean, obviously at this point they're not married yet, but Jennifer Jones and David Selznick, when we make it, when we do an episode on that, it will be unstoppable because what a train wreck. It's just bizarre. I mean, I can understand broadly why it happened but also it should not have happened Selznick had a lot of hot girlfriends don't get it but maybe he had a maybe he was packing I don't know I don't think so I think he just had like money power influence I think that was it a giant like no love for workers rights he was very 
against that. So I don't know. Maybe that gets some enemies of the proletariat going. <laughs> Getting hot and heavy before some HUAC hearing. I wonder if that was uh, how Ronnie and Nancy's kids were conceived. Doing like a whole, I'm McCarthy, you're a script girl who's half Ukrainian, and we're gonna, we're, we're, I'm gonna, I'm gonna interrogate you. That, anyway, that was, that was a fun joke about Ronald and Nancy Reagan's sex life. Anyway, you may continue. Think they involved jelly beans in that, or? <sighs> Like that. A lot of gray sweatpants. Um, I feel like the word scab was said a lot. Oh, I hate that. I hate that so much. Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the final big part was psychiatrist Dr. Judd, played by Tom Conway. Smaller roles went to Jack Holt is Oliver's boss. Alan Napier is his co-worker. Alec Craig is the zookeeper. And Teresa Harris as Minnie the waitress. One final role, which is little more than a bit part, but makes for one of the film's most memorable moments, is the cat-like woman who seems to recognize Arena at the Serbian restaurant. While Luton wanted someone kitten-like to play Arena, this woman's feline qualities were to be mysterious and threatening. Luton was friends with Salka Vertel, an Austrian actress whose home was a popular gathering place for European immigrants and exiles in Hollywood, and he asked Salka's son Peter, who had just written the screenplay for Hitchcock's Saboteur, to keep an eye out for anyone who might fit the part. At the time, Peter was dating Maria Montez, whose roommate was the model and part-time actress Elizabeth Russell. Upon meeting Russell, he told her, quote, I have a friend at RKO who needs a woman for his new movie that looks like a cat. To which Russell replied, you think I look like a cat. Luton evidently agreed because when Russell went to see him, he cast her on the spot. She does have a cat-like quality to it. But I mean, that could also be the fact that she's eating alone in a Serbian restaurant (laughs) wearing like a fully sequined, like floor length gown. So, I mean... I do kind of feel like that's what most cats would do if they were people. Yeah, honestly. Cat People began filming on July 28th, 1942. The first scene shot was Oliver's trip to Arena's apartment, reached by an enormous staircase left over from the Magnificent Ambersons, and her recounting the story of King John and the Cat People. You see, the Mamelukes came to Serbia long ago, and they made the people slaves. Well, at first, the people were good and worshipped God in a true Christian way. But, uh... Little by little, the people changed. When King John drove out the Mamelukes and came to our village, he found dreadful things. People bowed down to Satan and said their masses to him. They had become witches and were evil. But King John put some of them to the sword but some, the wisest and the most wicked, escaped into the mountains. Now, do you understand? Well, I still don't see what it has to do with you. Those who escape, the wicked ones, their legend haunts the village where I was born. The next day brought the arrival of Jane Randolph as Alice, and while I hate to contribute to any woman-be-cat-fighting narratives, uh, the truth is they did not get along at all. Decades later, Randolph described Simone as terrible and recalled, quote, she was always upstaging me. Jacques Turner really bawled her out in French and she didn't like that either. She was very difficult with everyone. This is far from the only time Simone was accused of being a diva on set. It was a major part of her reputation. And from the minute she was cast in a cheap B picture like Cat People, the media was champing at the bit for her to act out. Simone recalled that when she arrived at the train station in LA to begin work on the film, publicity men were waiting for her with a cat mask on hand. 
Quote, I had a reputation for being temperamental. I never knew why, but this became part of my temperamental legend. Because when they said, will you please, Miss Simone, put that on your face? I said, I certainly will not put that on my face. If you want, you can photograph me with it in my hand. So they said, oh, there she goes again. But to be fair to Simone, I will note that DeWitt Bodine thought she was lovable, and Val Luton Jr. recalled his father telling the family how great she was over dinner, so make of that what you will. Well, I would say, yeah, because if, if he, like, didn't like cats, then how could she be catty? <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the thing. I, I feel always feel like with these things, when women are called, like, difficult or hard to work with, it's really just all the men and people around them create a hostile environment for them. Yeah, it's it's definitely easy to see why Jane Randolph might have felt like she was being pitted against Simone Simon. Like, I, I can see where that would have come from. Also, I, un- I understand um, a certain level of resentment towards stars, you know what I mean? In in any context, when you're a fellow actor, because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, the rest of us have to be on time, but you can throw a fit in your dressing room because you didn't get your diet Snapple or whatever, you know? That is very much a thing. Not necessarily saying that's similar Simon, but it is a thing, you know? And it's often, obviously, 99% of the time leveled towards women. But yeah, I can get that. I can, I, I get that. So by the third day of shooting, production was already a day behind schedule. Executive producer Lee Ostro saw the rushes, hated them, and decided that the only solution was to fire Jacques Turner. Luton called Charles Kerner in a panic, but Kerner was in New York. All seemed bleak until Kerner returned the next day, looked at the rushes, and told everyone to chill out and just leave Jacques alone. Uh, still, the schedule would never get back on track. This was not helped when, while filming one of the zoo scenes the next day, a panther, a leopard, a lion, and what I can only assume was the single bravest and dumbest dog to ever live, got into a fight after breaking through some wire netting. <laughs> it was Penny. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's certainly a thing, isn't it? Like, I feel like why is not the thing you want. With all of those animals involved. Yeah, yeah. but also... said in this is quite shocking, you know? It's like, wow, that's really... You think that's going to hold them, huh? All right. Well, that's your key. Oh, I'm always forgetting it. There ain't no worry in it. Nobody wanted to steal one of them critters. <laughs> the pet store, this is just as, as an aside, where um, I buy Lulu's special dog food because she's a special girl, um, has monkey food because there's some <laughs> monkey out there that is... You can't own a monkey now, obviously, but there are monkeys that are grandfathered in. You know, they're not going to, like, round up all the monkeys. <laughs> And execute them. So, uh, but yeah, they sell monkey food. And I'm like, who's that lucky bastard out there with the monkey? Brave for Mojo. Uh, one of the next big scenes to be filmed after Dr. Judd's death by mauling and Arena's suicide in front of the panther cage was the iconic scene in which Arena stalks Alice through Central Park. And this is a scene that I think really benefits from the limitations of making a cheap B-movie. The lack of extras and the staginess of the park lend a weird kind of otherworldliness and really make the scene especially eerie. It also ends with what has been credited as the first jump scare, the ratcheting of tension followed by the sudden noisy appearance of a city bus. Sister, are you riding with me or ain't you? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. Did you see it? The Luton bus, as it came to be known, was the work of editor Mark Robeson, who intended to, quote, knock people out of their seats in a theater. Of course, whether this was truly the first jump scare is arguable. Uh, One might point also to the notorious bird in Citizen Kane a year earlier, which Orson Welles always maintained was included to wake up his audience. 
and I'm sure you'd probably find similar stuff in earlier horror movies, but the Luton unit was definitely the first to kind of define it, and they brought it back in later projects. I mean, it's a fucking sick scene. Not to get too, I guess, flattering of Jacques Turner. He knows how to use light really well, and in this scene, like, going between the streetlights and the, <laughs> I did say when we were watching it, like the, the sound of the footsteps, what if Simone Simon was wearing D's clown shoes? <laughs> And chasing her, but like, like it really does build this incredible tension um, in those moments of light and the flickering. And then when the bus does come in, it is quite a shock. So I think whether it's the first, like the first, is debatable. But like, it's certainly a prime example of it, prime enough for it to be considered like the premier jump scare. Yeah, for sure. So I yeah. Think it's earned. Yeah. No, definitely. And I, I, I love Jacques Turner. I, 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 I'm a big enthusiast. Um, I think he made so many really underrated movies. And I'm glad that this one obviously is not an underrated movie, but that it, it's such a, he has such a subtle artistry and such a, such a charm. And I appreciate the fact that he can approach really any subject without it coming off as if it's beneath him, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons why this movie works so well as, again, like a B-grade cheapo horror picture from a struggling studio. Because he's able to imbue it with a certain, like, gravity that it wouldn't otherwise have. Are you also saying this because of his many films with Dana Andrews? Maybe maybe this... I'm saying that um, because of that. That might be that might be part of it. No, I really, um, I think he... Uh, no, I don't think he's a bad director. I didn't, I didn't mean for... I just am always hesitant to... I just lavish mean, praise on any director. Oh but. yeah, because they're mostly assholes. Um, no, but like uh, yeah. I walk with a zombie. I love a walk with a zombie. And uh, Stars in My Crown is a really unconventional western, but it's one of my favorite westerns. It's a beautiful movie, um, and a movie that's not as well known as it as it should be because it's a western. Um, but and Night it, of the Demon is a good movie. So. Again, oh, I feel like I think feel like he unfortunately falls into that ghettoization of certain genres in Hollywood, where there's that assumption that they can't really uh, approach art because that there's there's, so, there's something holding them back. I, I would put a lot of those movies that he made up against a lot of critical favorites that I find just very dull from Sarah. I'm not going to name names. Um, anyway, I was also going to say about jump scares. Um, I'm not. I can't. Th- think offhand of any prior jump scares apart from what you mentioned but i know that in the future there will be jump scares when i watch the vampire bat and i remember that lionel atwell allegedly was hosting orgies (laughs) (laughs) house every time i see lionel atwell i will jump out of my street in my seat and i might scream do you think melvin douglas was at any of those orgies i hope not i'm gonna say i hope not he was that little stash (laughs) bring my little stash to your orgy well, next up was Oliver and Arena's wedding dinner with the cameo by Elizabeth Russell as the Catwoman. Look at that woman. Isn't she something? Looks like a cat. Thank you so much for this lovely party, Alice. I didn't know there was a seven restaurant. Anything you want to know about this city, ask me. I know all the unimportant details. <laughs> Moyasestra. 
Moja sestra? It's impossible to bring up this scene without noting that people have been reading gay subtext into it literally from the moment it hits screens. Uh, after the film was released, Luton received several letters praising its boldness, and he confronted Bodine. As Bodine recalled, quote, Val was indignant when he called me into his office, demanding to know if I had deliberately written the scene with that meaning. I saved myself by saying, Val, if you write a scene between two strange women and one says to the other in a foreign language, my sister, you can bet your ass that there will be those who say, ah, lesbians. He cooled down and left. Years later, Bodine, who I should know it was gay himself, elaborated, quote, Actually, I rather liked the insinuation and thought it added a neat bit of interpretation. Irina's fears about destroying a lover if she kissed him could be because she was really a lesbian who loathed being kissed by a man. And I personally would suggest that Luton was playing dumb at least a little bit, considering he was raised in part by fucking Alan Izimova, who was famously bisexual. Yeah. My, my biggest thing about this scene is what the fuck is in that huge pot that's on the table? <laughs> like, it is a massive cauldron that they're all eating from. I guess it's like some kind of Eastern European stew, borscht, perhaps. We're going to offend a lot of Serbians with our ignorance here. Our ignorance of Serbian cuisine. Let's Google it. Serbian stews. (laughs) (laughs) Now Napier's just got that big old cauldron, and he's just like, he's having a good time. He's having a great time. And, I mean, I'll say again, the other Catwoman is wearing, you know, fully sequined evening gown alone at a Serbian restaurant. Which I, I mean, I respect it. It's certainly a power move. Okay. So when you Google Serbian stew, um, you get a lot of results. <laughs> Standard things like goulash, you know, cabbage stew, all that kind of stuff. Don't like this one, though. Uh, Serbian rice meat. Don't like that. Don't like the name rice Ooh. meat. Let's find out what's in it. Okay. It's, it's trying to get me to accept the... Okay. Holy shit. Okay. Serbian rice meat is made with pig's neck, goose lard... Onions, rice, tomatoes, broth, pepper and salt, paprika, and parsley. Doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't sound great. Pig's neck and goose lard? I'm sorry, my, 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 my Balkans, but my Balkan buddies. Balkan buddies. She shouldn't have, she shouldn't have walked up to her and said, Sastra, or whatever. She should have said Balkan buddies. <laughs> <laughs> no homoerotic subsex no. in that. <laughs> that just sounds like a cop show. Well, I, I that kind of subtext is, uh, I think, very... Not so much in this movie, obviously. Curse of the Cat People, the sequel, is the one where it's very difficult to read that as anything other than a gay narrative. You know, a gay coming-of-age narrative. That's always been the interpretation of Cat People. I, I mean, of Curse of the Cat People since it was released. But I, I, I don't know if I really believe Dewitt Bodine's, uh, uh, you know... I think the lady does protest too much. I, I think not only is it an interpretation, but I do think there is a little bit of that in it. But then again, you know, I read everything as being like that. So. And they were roommates. Oh my 
God, they were roommates. So two days later, they filmed the swimming pool scene at the Royal Palms Hotel in Los Angeles, which I believe is now an addiction recovery center. Like everything else in Los Angeles. Like my childhood home. Look, we need them. I respect them. We we need them. I was going to say, I was hoping you were going to say the ambassador where, where Bobby Kennedy got shot, but that's fine. Imagine if he got shot in the pool. That'd be... That'd be cool. Just like Sunset Boulevard. Did you see that they're going to release Sirhan Sirhan on parole? I mean, he's done his time. He's like a million years old. But I Like, d- what's he going to do? Can't kill him again. You <laughs> can't kill him again. But it's admittedly funny that it's like... I, I feel like if I were a very famous assassin, I'd be a little offended that they, they don't think I'm a threat to society anymore. I feel like I'd be like, you should still fear me. I'm, I'm a little taken aback by that. I don't know. With assassins, though, it's like, once the target is gone, what threat do you pose? That's true. I guess, although, if you believe that Sirhan, Sirhan did it out of a political statement... Uh, in in support of Palestine, you know, not support. You know what I mean? As a as a as a, as a uh... no, I think it did it because he was very mentally ill. Uh... <laughs> I think he did it because Bobby Kennedy was fucking there and annoying and probably didn't tip him well. Oh, that's just my impression. Thank you. <laughs> The Kennedys strike me as being terrible tippers. They always have. So the big spenders over at RKO paid $35 to rent out the pool for the day, or about $586 today. Disregarding Joseph Breen's insistence that they tone down Alice's fright in the scene, the team went absolutely hog wild and had her scream bloody murder. Simone Simon would later say that Randolph, quote, acted beautifully and was wonderfully wonderful in that scene. I don't know if she knew all the shit talking Randolph had been doing about her. Turner insisted that the cat shadow seen on the wall was really the shadow of his fist. He keeps saying that in all these interviews. When I watch it, it doesn't look like a fist, but that's what he said. He's just got fucked up hands. <laughs> and the spooky cat noises were a mix of actress Dorothy Lloyd and real cats recorded at a lion farm outside LA. So you can't get monkeys or lions now. There were a lot of lions out here at one point. I guess a lot of people were grandfathered in on that, you know, like after Tiger King. A lot of people had tigers. So which true. they should not have had. I mean, she does do a lot of screaming in that scene, though. It's like... Chill out, lady. It's very Breen to be like, I find the screaming disturbing. I would appreciate it if you would not. It's loud and it hurts my ears. <laughs> Breen is like the original like Gen Z Twitter kid being like, I don't I, I, I don't like the color orange. Please don't show it to me anymore. I will I will block and unfollow. But also like when you're thinking about the nature of the event, like it's a cat. Are panthers known for their aquatic abilities? I don't think so. Well, here's the problem. You come from a country where people are routinely confronted by large wildlife. Um, And that's not typical of most places. So I find it entirely believable that this woman living in New York City or whatever is confronted by a giant panther and screams her ass off. Because, you know, (laughs) you, I mean, I remember that one picture you sent us of that snake. Um, that was in someone's backyard, and it was like eight feet long, and it was just chilling on a fence. That would cause pandemonium. Here. I mean, I've never seen a snake that big, but uh, like personally. But I mean, I, surely your logic takes over, and it's like I'm probably the safest I could be in this pool because this this panther. All she knows is that there's some sort of Serbian witch coming after her, and um, does not appreciate boats and 
That's a big <laughs> character flaw in her world, you know? She does not appreciate boats. I guess. And the only other thing is that she's not doing a lot of swimming in that pool. Because she's not on a boat. She needs <laughs> she needs a boat. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Must work harder. She needs a boat to be confident around water. Well, by now they were well off schedule and scrambling to finish the movie. Uh, Simone Simon finished a few smaller scenes and completed her role, leaving Kent Smith and Jane Randolph as the only principal players still on deck. The final big scene was the confrontation with Arena, now in full panther mode, as she stalks them through their office. Joseph Breen had not been impressed with the scene as scripted, quote, The business of Oliver holding the T-square in front of him like a crucifix will undoubtedly prove offensive to many persons of sincere religious convictions. This business should be omitted. At this point, we request also that you omit Oliver's two uses of the phrase, In the name of God. Once again, however, the team allowed Breen to scream into the void while they filmed the scene as is. Look, I, the only issue I took with this scene was cats don't fear God <laughs> is my big thing. <laughs> like, my cat absolutely has no fear of God, so <laughs> it would not have stopped it. Also, it doesn't help that Kent Smith is one of the worst actors. Who's ever lived? He's so boring. I just, that's the, the like, he's the one who's like, I've never been sad before in my life. And it's like, well, yeah, because you're the most boring person possible. You know, it's a funny thing. I've never been unhappy before. Things have always gone swell for me. I had a grand time as a kid. Lots of fun at school. And you're at the office with you and the Commodore and Doc. That's why I don't know what to do about all this. I've just never been unhappy. I mean, you don't like or respect your hot, crazy wife. <laughs> she is the hottest and craziest wife of all. And, and then it took that, it took that for you to be like, well, actually, I like this other guy. Come yeah, on. Apparently he had been pining for him for God. years, but he didn't notice or care or whatever. And it's like, how dumb It's so frustrating. Be? It's like, I wish he had gotten fucking mauled to death, but can't have it all, can we? Yeah, he's terrible. RKO really did specialize in completely forgettable male leads. Not like a certain genius named Samuel Goldwyn. <laughs> Who specializes in only extremely good male leads. Like Farley Brink. Who could never face away from the fucking camera. <laughs> oh, iconic. We really should do, um, ever since you walked into my rectum one of these days, I think that would be a banger. <laughs> Edge of doom. When the finished product was first screened for RKO executives, Tornet recalled, quote, nobody would talk to us. Val and I walked out on the sidewalk and they all filed past and nobody spoke. They hated it. Despite the team having complied with studio insistence that additional shots of a panther be added to compete with Universal's more literal brand of monster horror, Charles Kerner came out of the screening disappointed with the amount of cat content. I guess, you know, as as you'd said, nobody'd done much with cats. He wanted more cats. Well, he's going to rectify that soon when Tornet, when, uh, when Val Luton's going to have to make uh, the leopard man. Is that why they ended up making the leopard man? He's like, not enough cats and cat people. Here's another assignment. It's the man cheetah. <laughs> the film was then previewed at the blue collar Hill Street Theater in LA, where things got off to a rough start. As DeWitt Bodine remembered, quote, the preview was preceded by a Disney cartoon about a little pussycat and Val's spirit sank lower and lower as the audience began to catcall and make loud mewing sounds. Oh God, he kept murmuring as he wiped the perspiration from his forehead. Our picture's title was greeted with whoops of derision and louder meows, but when the credits were over and the film began to unreal, the audience quieted, and as the story progressed, reacted as we had hoped an audience might. There were gasps and some screaming as the shock sequences grew. By the end, he said, the crowd was, quote, enchanted. 
Nevertheless, a nervous Jane Randolph was unhappy with her performance and snuck out of the theater scared of being recognized. I think she's very good. I always do think it's funny, though, when actors think that they're going to be recognized because it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen nearly as, much, as often as they expect. I like that story that I think it was David Tulis told, Tulis, Tulis. But um, when in the middle of like Harry Potter mania, he went to Disneyland with his kids and he hired a security guard because, you know, again, he's Professor Lupin. He thought, you know, somebody, no one, not a single goddamn person walked up to them in the entire day. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't translate. Although one time I did see, um, I can't remember the character's name, one of George's bosses from Seinfeld. The one who kind of looks a little bit like Carl uh, Walden. That was that was an exciting moment. You can cut that out. But I just thought I just thought <laughs> you should know that I saw him at Jinky's Coffee Shop on Ventura Boulevard, and it was a very exciting moment in my life. Also, I saw Leslie Jones at. I already told you that I saw Leslie Jones at Bob's Big Boy. They took down the picture of William Holden at Bob's Big Boy, but guess who's up there now? Who? Dana Andrews inexplicably <laughs> is now on the wall where William Holden was. Don't ask me. <laughs> they were right to do it. They were right to do it. I was like, wow. They changed like all the, the celebrity pictures up um, over the, the the pickup counter. The cashier is. I thought that was very Maybe strange. they're listeners of the show and they're just like going on the celebrities we mention most. I, I admire the most. You know, they, they had the picture of Holden up and then I made fun of vehicular homicide in one of our episodes and then we had to take him down. You know, that's what happens. <laughs> we are the judges. We you are the ultimate. <laughs> he got canceled. <laughs> we are the tribunal. For killing that person. <laughs> canceled for killing someone. Canceled. Canceled for killing someone. Oh, it reminds me of how um, uh, they were talking about, I can't remember, I think this is, Trixie and Katya's podcast, but they were talking about um, how Caitlyn Jenner went to some event for um, like victims of crimes or whatever, and then somebody on Twitter in response, whatever, was just like, so like not the person you like ran over though, like that doesn't count. That's not a that's not a victim of a crime. An event for the victims of crimes. A <laughs> gala. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I mean, it was like you know one of those things. Cat People had its premiere at the Rialto Theater in New York City on December 5th, 1942. It was a huge success, playing for two straight weeks of packed houses. Apparently the only person in New York not impressed was our buddy Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who wrote, quote, The strangely embarrassing predicament of a lady who finds herself possessed of mystical feline temptations, especially one to claw people to death, is the topic pursued at tedious and graphically unproductive length in Arkeo's latest little chiller cat people. Miss Simone's cuddly little tabby would barely frighten a mouse under a chair. I feel like Bosley Crowther has never been correct about a movie in his entire life. Also unsurprised that a man like that wouldn't like cats because they wouldn't <laughs> like him because he's a cunt. So anyone who could have a pathological like vendetta against Joan Crawford is not someone I want to hang out he's with. He's just never been correct about fucking anything. And it's like, I don't care to hear it. I simply don't care to hear it. It's like, why you got to be so catty about cat people? I really don't think Simone Simon's the cat here. Bitch. Anyway, um... <laughs> Let's just stop talking about that, man. Well, if two weeks at the Rialto didn't prove him wrong, the movie's time at Hollywood's Hawaii theater certainly did. This was the same theater where Citizen Kane had played a record-breaking 17 weeks. Cat People did an impressive 13. Tornet recalled, quote, Suddenly we were the fair-haired boys. They gave me a bonus of $1,000 just out of nowhere. RKO made nothing but money on Cat People. 
They launched an elaborate publicity campaign to promote the film nationwide. Theaters were advised to build six-foot cages containing either cardboard cutouts of Simone Simon or live models dressed in evening gowns and cat masks. Oh, me working for the fucking marketing department at Arcade. <laughs> the press book even went so far as to suggest theaters promote the movie with the following stunt, quote, Dress a woman wearing a formal evening gown and a cat head mask and have her walk down the streets of her town. Have her visit food stores, department stores, and others of a similar nature. And when I told Amelia about this a few weeks ago when I was doing my research, uh, she said she wished it had actually happened. So what I didn't mention at the time was that it did. Oh, An anecdote right. <laughs> from the book The Very Witching Time of Night by Gregory Mank confirms that at the very least one theater in Baltimore hired a woman to wander around town in an evening gown and a cat mask carrying a shopping bag that read, Meow, I'm bound to see Simone Simon in Cat People. That's great. I wish they still did fun shit like that for movies. Now all we get is like, three trailers for the same movie that may or may not come, be coming out so like the new James Bond film and then and then that's it there's no sort of fanfare there's no kind of like night promoting crazy merchandise love that shit that comes out we get like a single tweet from some intern at a production company being like hey sis you're a reactionary if you don't pay 24 dollars to go see blood fuck 2 you're being added yeah (laughs) um you're being added to my to my block list hey look if if that intern wants to send me some dumb cool merch i'm about it i went out of my way to get a sleepless in seattle uh, promotional t-shirt i appreciate this i feel like it would have been an interesting day at the supermarket for someone seeing that i don't know how good it would have been at promoting the film though apparently it really freaked out some kids yeah <laughs> well i mean i'm all for that <laughs> more of that but also the sheer volume of releases at that point in time i mean when you really think about how many movies are being released a week by the Hollywood studios. And that's not even thinking about imports. You know, that's not even thinking about um, repertory houses that are rescreening old favorites. That's not thinking about all the other competing, uh, competing forms of entertainment. It's like, if you're thinking of a, of, of a typical studio schedule where it's like, you got a couple B pictures and then at least, let's say probably two A pictures a month, there's a lot of movies to see. And now it's like, you know, you go to buy a ticket for a movie and you've got a couple options and they all suck ass. So they, they don't have to, it's like almost like, you know, they've built it and then we will come. You know what I mean? You'll go to the movie theater and you'll be like, God, fuck, I guess I'll see, you know, baby porkies, <laughs> big fat move or whatever, because that's like all <laughs> I would go see that movie. Uh, Porky, Porky the Pig, villain origin story um, that it's like, you know, now it's like you go, you're like, ah, I guess I'll see that, whatever. Whereas the, 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 the fact that you really had to stand out at that point in time, because it's like, oh, what am I going to go see? I've got, you know, there's an Olivia de Havilland movie coming out, you know, maybe I want to go see a war picture, you know, there's a, a giant three hour technical and musical, you've got options, you know, you have to do things like dress up a woman like a cat and parade her around the streets of Baltimore. And we have that now and they're called furries and yet they're slandered. <laughs> And persecuted. Interesting. <laughs> With reason. According to Tournaire, after Cat People, we could have asked for the moon. The unit's greatest limitation was that it still had to accept RKO's terrible focus group titles, such as I Walked with a Zombie and The Leopard Man, but they stuck to their philosophy of turning out better movies than the titles implied, producing a trio of horror films that had RKO rolling in cash. So naturally, because executives are morons, they had to throw a wrench in a good thing. 
Quote, we were making so much money on our films together, said Turner, that the studio said, we'll make twice as much money if we separate them. Turner left after The Leopard Man to make the war film Days of Glory, which marked the screen debut of Gregory Peck, while Mark Robeson slid into the director's chair on the next two Luton pictures, The Seventh Victim and The Ghost Ship. Uh, after The Ghost Ship, RKO decided it was high time for a Cat People sequel. According to Bodine, when Luton was given the assignment to make the sequel to Cat People, he groaned because he was told to call it The Curse of the Cat People. So he said, What I'm going to do is make a very delicate story of a child who is on the verge of insanity because she lives in a fantasy world, and God help him, he did just that. I like it. I like that he's, like, working within these incredibly stupid parameters enforced on him on like by morons and it's like well how can i make this the freakiest shit i can and then make boatloads of cash for it and i also appreciate that um you know there there was there was a good idea there you know it just a, a, a kernel of a good idea in splitting them up because mark robeson was obviously bound for bigger and better things with stuff like valley of the dolls and earthquake and uh into the sixth happiness <laughs> And Peyton Place in a, in a little movie by the name of Edge of Doom, which is the movie where Dana Andrews walks into a guy's rectum. No, Farley. Oh, Farley is the one who walks, walks into, into Dana's rectum. Dana's rectum. Right, that's so true. Pardon me, I just there's so many there's so, so many rectums flying in my face. Uh, we should put in a clip <laughs> Jesus <from> Christ. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we should put. Are you at the orgy? I'm like, at the orgy at Lionel Atwell's house, but we also brought the furries from the streets of Baltimore. So there's a lot going on right now. <laughs> a lot of fur flying. Well, Luton followed her. The Curse of the Cat People with two more non-horror films, Mademoiselle Fifi and Youth Runs Wild, then headed back to the horror well with The Body Snatcher, Isle of the Dead, and Bedlam, all starring Boris Karloff. Luton then suffered a minor heart attack in 1946, found himself on the outs at RKO following the death of Charles Kerner, and spent the next five years bouncing from studio to studio, producing My Own True Love at Paramount, Please Believe Me at MGM, and Apache Drums at Universal. None of these seemed to bring him the creative satisfaction he'd had on his unit at RKO, and a failed attempt to launch an independent production company with Robert Wise and Mark Robeson left him depressed both professionally and personally. In the words of Alan Napier, quote, fighting for what he wanted, wore Val out, and a failure to get it broke his heart. He should have been an independent producer, yet he needed the protection of a big studio. Bodine recalled, I never knew anyone who was so desperately unhappy who lost all faith in himself. And unfortunately, Luton's end was a bad one. Uh, plagued by self-doubt in a changing industry, he died of a second heart attack in 1951 at the age of 46. Man, it makes me so angry when it's just like, you, you had something real good, and then you got greedy, and then you killed a man. So, I mean... How many deaths RKO are responsible for? Who knows? The blood but, um, on their hands. Their blood on their hands. <laughs> and he's also, I was going to say, there's also uh, speculation that the Kirk Douglas character in The Bad and the Beautiful is based on Val Luton. Right, you know? I saw that, yeah. The idea of kind of a nepotism baby who has this artistic idealism and then kind of um, the personality flaws and, and, and failings um, that that keep someone from being able to, cause it's such a, cause it's such a, it, it's a weird movie in the sense that it's, it's kind of, it's, it's very bitter, but it's also very true at the same time. But I, I find Val Loon to be a more compelling template for that character than a lot of the other names that have been floated. But you know, I think that's typical. Everyone wants to think that they have some sort of cool insight and they don't. To finish, I'd just like to read a few more quotes. 
Uh, Luton seemed, this isn't a quote, this is just me, Luton seemed to thrive within and the best of his his movies emerged from an environment of creative collaboration with a team of talented artists who were all equally invested in overcoming limitations to produce great art. Uh, Robert Wise, who directed The Curse of the Cat People, Mademoiselle Fifi, and The Body Snatcher, described the process of working on the Luton unit as, quote, a kind of community of creators, a meeting of the minds between Luton, his directors, his writers, and sometimes art directors. It was very stimulating, very exciting. As Bodine noted, quote, the stories he produced are dramatizations of the psychology of fear. Man fears the unknown, the dark, that which may lurk in the shadows. That which he cannot see fills him with basic and understandable terror. This was the core Luton philosophy as he explained, quote, if you make the screen dark enough, the mind's eye will read anything into it you want. We're great ones for dark patches. Turner summed up his work with Luton as such, quote, I'm a great believer in collaboration. Val was the dreamer and I was the materialist. I always had both feet on the ground. We complimented each other. By himself, Val might go off the deep end and I, by myself, might lose a certain poetry. Finally, James Ag described the Luton films best, in my opinion, when he said, quote, I esteem them so highly because for all their unevenness, their achievements are so consistently alive, limber, poetic, humane, so eager towards the possibilities of the screen, and so resolutely against the grain of all we have learned to expect from the big studios. I think, it uh, again, this movie is another great example of uh, what's unseen uh, is much more scary than anything we do actually see. A couple of things with this movie that I really enjoy is, number one, the set design. Her apartment is fucking bonkers. I love it. It's like huge cavernous apartment with so many crazy furnishings and then this just huge statue of this, you know, mythical king yeah. <laughs> and then um and then it's just a fucking tiny kitchen like the smallest little kitchen that you've ever seen the vibe is it was once a great big house that was subdivided um but the the staircase which i know was you know repurposed from the magnificent ambersons the the shots that they get on it are really great i also think there's some really like beautifully significant shots in this movie uh, like when Simone Simon is at the psychiatrist and it's just the the light on her face. Mm-hmm. You were saying the cats. It torment me. I wake in the night and the tread of their feet whispers in my brain. I have no peace. For they are in me. I think that's a really magnificent shot. Um, I put it up there with, you know, the, the shot of Jean Tierney in Laura when she's being interrogated. I also think that the, the obviously the shot of, you know, the feet running in the street, um, I think they're all really inspired. And given the limitations that they were working under, I think it's even more um, astounding that they were able to produce a product such as this. In terms of the actual story, one, again, Nothing Simone Simon does in this movie is, like, wrong. She is in the right all the time. Just like when we went through The Uncanny, the cat is right. Always justified uh, in whatever they do because she openly expresses her hesitations about getting into any kind of horny territory, why she doesn't want to do that. I want to be Mrs. Reed. You what? But I want to be Mrs. Reed, really. I want to be everything that name means to me. 
And I can't. I can't. Oliver, be kind. Be patient. Let me have time. Time to get over that feeling there's something evil in me. Darling, you have all the time there is in the world if you want it. And all the patience and kindness there's in me. Only a little time, Oliver. I don't want more than that. And then everyone else is just like, well, she's crazy. And it was concerning how easy it was for them to decide to have her institutionalized, but also um, that he couldn't divorce her if she was institutionalized, which I, Candace pointed out, is something that gave a lot of people divorces in the past, um, men institutionalizing their wives. But I think the best scene in this movie, like from a, a plot point, is when she turns into a panther and kills the psychiatrist because he was a lecherous pig. Um, I think she was totally justified in doing that, and I, I really think she should have been able to kill everybody else in this movie. <laughs> but that's just that's just me. I, I understand that they went for a much more subtle and, and sad ending, but I mean. Overall, it's a good movie. Always like to see a movie that um, sort of plays on those levels. I mean, I like any movie that's like anti-yawny, so <laughs> it's a big plus for me. <laughs> Meanwhile, my favorite part of the movie is the idea that it's this, this terror of unchecked female sexual expression and the, um, that it's something that she feels she has to, she has to restrain and that this increasingly liberalized American society around her doesn't understand that. And there's almost this vibe of like, you know, is it kind of that clash of new world and old world morality? Or is it, you know, again, is it something deeper? You know, is she just frigid in common parlance of the era? You know, I, is she, you know, are those people who sent all those letters right? And, you know, is... I mean, I think either way, it's about constraining her sexuality, yeah. like regardless of whether she wants to turn into a panther, as it were, or um, doesn't want to, that choice is taken away from her yes. and it's talked about but not like talked about with her. It's not her choice at the end of the day, which is I, I think an incredibly uh, prescient mm -hmm. message. And I, I think it's also one of the movies in which the – kind of moral strictures of the code make sense um, in the idea that, well, you know, she's committed these crimes. So she has to, she has to pay with her life by the end of the picture. But uh, it's such a, it's such a poignant ending when Kent Smith and Jane Randolph get to the, the zoo and find her laying, you know, out on the ground in her, her panther form. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great scene. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a great ending. She never lied to us. And I also, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when she's kind of has these, these doubts, you know, everyone's kind of filling her head with, oh, you know, you're just, you're crazy or you're just old fashioned or, you know, you, you, you take myth too seriously. You're not, again, that very much is this, this idea that she, that she clings to these, outdated um, kind of primitive myths, you know, and that she should be more of effectively a, a modern, a modern woman, a modern Western woman. But when she's in the zoo, she goes, she visits the zoo at one point and she's standing outside the, the big cat cages. And then she kind of starts pacing back and forth. And 
like she's mm-hmm. a cat trapped in a cage. And it's like such a brief shot, but it's like it's a wonderful shot. Um, just again, those those little brief moments of like, oh wow, like really illuminating artistry. I it's such a it's it's such a it's such a great movie. It's a great movie to return to. And um I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of furries. Um and even <laughs> diet George Sanders can't ruin it, Mr. Tom Cohen. I, I do like um the fact that the pet shop seems to operate on a barter system. <laughs> yeah. Because he's like, I wanna exchange this kitten for a bird. And it's like that doesn't seem like they'd cost the same amount of money. But, I mean, who am I to say how much a bird costs? Presumably you could trade, like, a goldfish for a monkey at this place. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's essentially what we're, like, being asked to believe. Because, like, he just walks out with that thing. It's like that guy who started out with a paperclip and ended up at the house. He could have walked out of that zoo with the panther had he started out with that little canary. Uh, Candace did say that when we were watching this that Simone's accent sounds a bit like Tommy Wiseau's. There's a couple moments that are very much like I can hear Tommy in, in, in my, in my <laughs> he, he lives in there. Tommy lives in my skull. He just, he runs everything up there. So he's pulling <laughs> Well, um, as always, thank you all for listening. If you aren't subscribed to this podcast, subscribe. Um, if you like it, give us a, a rating and a review wherever you listen. If you don't like it, don't, please. If you don't like it, I mean, you can comment, but I mean, that's time out of your day. You can follow us on our socials at Twitter um, and Instagram at BasketPod. But yeah, uh, that's it. Uh, stay safe. Uh, get vaccinated. Don't eat the horse paste. Do not. I was lying. I'm vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. Don't eat the horse paste. (laughs) Cat paste, though. Cat paste is about it. (laughs) Monkey paste. You can get those like little cat yogurts. (laughs) That's the cat paste you can eat. I don't know if it cures COVID though. Let's find out. All right. Okay. Bye. (laughs) Stop recording. Bye. Are those birds? They're birds, yeah. They're in my yard. I can't do anything about them, unfortunately. (laughs) You could. You had, you know, some rocks.